0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 55. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophecy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. The Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks once wrote, Till men have faith in Christ, their best services are glorious sins. So here we are now at the end, nearing the end of chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark. And then we find that Jesus now literally and figuratively stands in the deepness of the dark of night. Jesus Christ is alone in the dark. Which is strange because less than a week before, less than a week before Jesus had arrived to the outskirts of Jerusalem with a huge entourage of people, and he's at the height of his popularity. And in fulfillment of clear prophecy, Jesus mounts up on a donkey that no one had ever ridden before. He rides into the city, deliberately declaring by his actions that he is the king and the Messiah. And everybody knew it. The city was filled with celebration as people put down palm branches in his path before him. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means literally save now. Because they knew that the king had come and everyone was excited I believe that in this moment and in this context, that the warning that Jesus had given his disciples, the warning that he would be handed over to his enemies and be crucified, the warning that he gave not once but three different times, that this warning must have seemed like a distant, forgotten memory at this point. At this moment, they couldn't imagine anything close to that. I mean, how could someone even think of such a thing? Just look, everyone loved Jesus. Everyone was there to see him, everybody wanted to be close to him. And he's done such incredible things. He's healed people all manner of infirmities, sicknesses, you know, broken limbs, blindness, deafness. And more than that, he even cast out demons. And even more than that, he was giving hope to people who had no hope. People who were completely hopeless were suddenly having hope. And he loved Even the hard to love, the most unlovable, he was loving towards. And he spent time with the marginalized, and he was the friend of the worst kinds of sinners. And and, and more than that, it seemed like something big was on the horizon now. They could sense it, they could feel it. All of history seemed to be pointing to this moment in time. Something had changed, a new era was dawning. And we see Jesus was on the back of the donkey confirming for the world to see that he is what they expected him to be, the Messiah. He was the one that everyone was waiting on. And if that were not enough, Jesus comes into the temple and with God-given authority, he drives out the money changers and the merchants and he prevents people from, from using the temple grounds as a highway for commerce. And then when the Jewish religious leaders come out in force to question him, he immediately puts them in their place. With authority they just couldn't even fathom. With wisdom they couldn't couldn't undo. What can they do but turn tail and run? It seemed that in that moment that Jesus was completely untouchable. That nobody could do anything to him. No one could outsmart him. No one could catch him in any inconsistency. And no one dared to lay a hand on him publicly, lest the crowd turn on them and there be a revolt. But here we are now, and everything has changed in such a short amount of time. Jesus just spent the evening on his knees, in anguish, praying to the Father, if this could pass from me, let it be passed from me. But not as I will, but your will. In anguish, to the point where he was sweating drops of blood. And then he, as he predicted, was betrayed into the hands of his enemies by none other than one of his best friends, one of his closest apostles. And then as the soldiers take hold of him and lead him away, just as Jesus predicted, all of his disciples fell away. They all ran and abandoned him to his fate. They ran in fear. And even Peter, the boldest of them all who had said, I, would, I will never fall away. I'll go with you to prison and to death. Even he ran away, but then came back. But he didn't want to be identified with Christ, so he kept his distance from Jesus. And we know that this was just really the beginning of his denial, because in we'll see next week that Peter will completely deny Christ. Not just one time will he deny him, but three times he will fully Deny him, calling down a curse on his own head to deny him. Jesus, at this moment, is truly alone in the dark, and now he's in the hands of his enemies, and he is brought to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. If you remember last week, it said in um, verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Jesus is now firmly within the hands of his enemies, and now his first trial is about to begin. And that is where we are in this story. Now, before we actually take up the text and look at it, I want you to think about something with me. I've read this text multiple times, and and, and I want you to think with me. If you're a Christian, you are familiar with this story. You know what's about to take place. You know what's going on in the text. You know that this trial is a farce. You know that this is not a real trial. This is a kangaroo court. They are not meeting to determine his guilt or innocence. They, are, they have already, it's an already foregone conclusion They've already determined without the evidence, without presenting any case, he's already guilty. They've condemned him and determined him to be guilty. And and more than that, they have determined that he needs to die. All they're doing is simply looking for a justification that they can make stick. I mean, they're just looking for a reason to do what they already want to do. They just need to have a clear conscience to do it, right? By the way, We know what that's like. We have those things that we want to do in our lives, you know, and we just try to find that justification to do it. Sometimes they're pretty innocent things like, hey, I really want to buy this, right? Sometimes it's a little bit more complex and a little bit more devastating. But we know this is a farce. We know it, right? And, And they knew it. They knew that it was a farce. And even people who don't even fully understand the details of the story, they know after a brief reading that this is a farce. But with that in mind, that knowledge actually has a tendency, because we stand outside of it, has a tendency to obscure our vision a little bit. You see, we as Christians, we know that this is a farce, and we know that this is contrived, and we know in our hearts that these men are bent on evil. And we know that what they're doing is, is wrong. And because of that, I think we have a tendency, when we read a story like this, that we look at these men in the story with, with disdain. I mean, we will look down on them from where we sit in history. As if we, you know, are better. That we look at them as like unusually bad people, as if we would do better in the same circumstance. But I want you to hear me out on this. I'm not excusing what these people did at all. In fact, what they're doing and what they have done is the epitome of evil especially since the fact they're going to try to disguise this false trial as some religious act, as if they're, they're, that they're walking in obedience to God, doing what they're doing. What these men are doing is sinning in a horrific way. They're hypocrites to the worst possible degree, but, but the thing I want you to see and what I want you to think about is, is this. If we will actually slow down and actually look at how these men behaved, and what they did in their circumstances, and their justifications for what they did, I think that we would find, if we'll be honest with who we are, that we'll find we're actually a lot more like these men than we would care to admit. I just, I think this is part of the process of really growing in our understanding of who we are and who Christ is, as we get honest with ourselves and look at what the text is saying and examine our own hearts in that. In fact, I think one of the problems that is how we approach the Bible. We, when we read the Bible, we, we read the stories of the Bible. We, by default, tend to identify ourselves with the good guys. Just kind of what our nature is. We tend to identify with a hero. When we, when we read about the fall in the garden, we think about how stupid could you be to do that? He only gave you one rule. Don't eat that from that tree. Why would you do something so dumb as if you wouldn't do that? And then you read about Joseph and his brothers, you know, selling him into slavery. And you think, how could you be so cruel? How how could you do that to your brother? I would never do anything like that. Think about how you treated your brothers and sisters. You're capable of just the same. And then we read about the unfaithful Israelites, right? And how they complained to Moses over and over and over again. You know, why have you brought us out here? We're going to starve to death. We don't have enough water to drink. You know, our enemies are going to kill us. And then we look at that and we go, how could you be so ungrateful? God has brought you out of slavery by his own hand and power. And all you can do is complain as if we would behave differently. We read about the book of Judges and how Israel, right, is 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 walking with God, things are good, right? And then what happens? They start doing stupid things and turn away from God. God judges them, allows his enemies to take over. They begin to suffer, right? They cry out to the Lord. They repent. God heals them, restores them again, right? And what happens? They just do the whole cycle over again, over and over and over. And we're like, how could you be so blind? How could you be so dumb? Why? I would never do anything like that. And then we read the story of David and Goliath, right? We think about him, right? We kind of fancy ourselves as more of the David character, right? Rather than, right seeing the, the crowds who are, who are terrified and, and cowardly, who don't want to have anything to do with this. And we think, why wouldn't you stand up to Goliath? God is with you, as if we would have the, the courage of David. And it goes on and on and on. We see the failures of the people in the Bible, and we wonder why they could do what they do and be so stupid, and how they could be so cowardly, and how they could be so faithless. And then we see the hero, and we think, would we just be just like them, right? We'd be like David. We'd be like Gideon. We'd be like Noah. In fact, there are times we see ourselves in the, as a hero in the story at times. The problem is, though, is the odds are, is we would probably act just like them. We'd probably act like the worst people in the Bible given the, the right circumstances. We would probably be the cowards. We would probably be the ones who would complain all the time. We'd probably be the ones who would sell out our brothers, probably the ones who were faithless. In fact, if, there's, if we're honest with ourselves, we'd find that we have more in common with the bad guys and the cowards and the complainers than we actually do the heroes. In fact, I actually kind of think maybe it's borderline arrogant to think otherwise, to look down on these people as if somehow, intrinsically, we would do better than them if we were in their circumstances. Because, because here's the truth: the difference between them and us is simply one thing. It is the grace of God. Right? It is by the grace of God that we are not in their shoes. It is by the grace of God that we're here and not there. Right? As Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians five, I mean fifteen ten, he says, "By the grace of God, I am what I am." And the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we are capable of being just like the worst of them. Even the bad guys in this story, even though that we, you know, we have an understanding from a perspective 2,000 years removed, and that we can stand here in our comfortable building, you know, thousands of miles away, we can see that that situation was wrong. But we need to be honest with ourselves. If we were in their shoes, thinking their thoughts, doing what they did, we'd probably do a lot of the same things. We also need to come to terms with the fact that, that oftentimes, if we will examine our hearts, we, in this life, have a lot, we, have, we behave a lot like these men, right? And It's easy to miss that if we don't look at the details of how they're behaving. We would behave differently if our circumstances are different. We tend to minimize our own attitudes and behaviors. But the truth is, I think we're more like them than, than we admit. But, but here's the thing. If we'll actually allow ourselves to see this as the truth, if we'll just be honest, I believe we can learn a lot more from this text, and, and I believe that it can actually help us to grow to be more like Christ and less like these men, if we will just just be honest with ourselves. And so with that in mind, uh, let's look at beginning in verse 55. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. This sentence right here has a whole lot to tell us. There is so much here. The first thing we need to notice is that not only does was Jesus in the middle of the night, you know, they, was he arrested right there. Right? And not only were they brought, he was there with the high priest in this moment. But Mark tells us the whole council was there. This is a really important detail, because by referring to the whole council, what Mark is basically saying is that that the 70, the Sanhedrin, the 70 leaders, the religious leaders of all of Israel that lived in Jerusalem, the 70 top dogs of the religion were all there. 70 of the most important men in all Judea were at the high priest's house at this precise time in the middle of the night. Just think about that. With no cell phones, and with no internet service and no electronic communications, the high priest was able in a short amount of time, was able to wake up every one of these men and get them to his house in a reasonable amount of time in the middle of the night. Come on. Is that even plausible? You try to wake up like 10 members of your family in the middle of the night, try to get them in the room together. Right? <laughs> yes. The, the, the issue is, this is not a spur of the moment emergency gathering, right? This was pre planned. This was already pre arranged. They had planned for this to happen, and they planned for this to happen in the, in the middle of the night. Let's be clear about that. Right? They gathered in the middle of the night, right? to try Jesus on purpose. You know why? Because they knew what they were doing was wrong. They they knew it. How many times do we know that the ends that we're pursuing are wrong? We say, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be thinking this. And we just keep moving forward and keep moving forward and keep moving forward. They know what they're doing is wrong. The truth is, Jesus... If he was simply a criminal, the normal way that they would have done things is they would have arrested him and then locked him up for the night and then brought him before the Sanhedrin the next day in the Hall of Hewn Stones in the temple the next morning during normal business hours. right? And, and given the fact that this was actually close to the Sabbath, because the Sabbath would have been 24 hours uh, less than 24 hours later than that, they might have even said, hey, you know what, we'll actually deal with this on the first of the week, because we're about to observe the Sabbath, and we don't want to get caught up in a controversy. That would have been the normal way to do things. Somebody gets arrested, right, and then they actually get tried during normal business hours, but not this time. This time, they wanted things to be done quickly, privately, and quietly. Sounds like every political conspiracy you could ever think of right now. They didn't want to wait for Jesus to be able to mount a defense. They didn't want to give him an opportunity to be able to find positive witnesses if he would have wanted to call them. They didn't want to wait for it to be daylight so the the general public can attend and actually witness what's going on. That's why people turn off cameras nowadays, right? They didn't want to wait for the the council members to get cold feet and change their mind about putting him to death because this is a risky prospect for sure. And they certainly didn't want to wait for the crowd to be there because they might just object to how things were going if they knew what was actually happening. They knew what they were doing, and they knew it would be unpopular, and they knew what they were doing was unethical, and they knew what they were doing was extreme. Because notice what it says. Seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were gathered there after secretly having Jesus arrested in order to find a way to have him put to death. Because that's what they wanted. They wanted him to die. You see, they were not interested in finding out whether or not he was guilty or innocent. They didn't care about his motives. right? They they weren't interested in in the fact that he exhibited incredible God-given power. And they weren't certainly interested in discovering the truth. All they cared about was finding a way to kill Jesus and justify in killing him. Their minds had already been made up. Because this has been something they've been wanting to do now for years, if you remember. If you remember Mark chapter 3, I'll take you all the way back there. Mark chapter 3, we read a little episode where this rears its head. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. And so they might accuse him. They're basically saying, you can do nice, good things to people, but don't you dare heal somebody on the Sabbath, right? And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's not lose sight of this, by the way. Jesus does this incredible miracle. He restores a man back to health, which would have changed his entire life forever. And he does it on the Sabbath day. And they say, Jesus has to die. And and, and notice they don't consort with just each other. They actually go to their political enemies and say, we got to work together to get rid of this guy. Man, it sounds a lot like politics today, doesn't it? Think about that. They want to kill Jesus for healing someone on the Sabbath. And understand, Jesus actually technically didn't actually touch him. If you notice, he just said, stretch out your hand. He didn't actually lay hands on him, right? So they actually technically were pushing the edge of the law anyway, but it didn't matter. They saw Jesus as a lawbreaker and they decided even though Jesus did wonderful things for this man, he has to die. How is it even possible that people could be that way? Well, Mark tells us very clearly in verse five, it's it's right there for us to see. He says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. This is, the, this is the issue, brothers and sisters, right here. You see, the reason why they wanted Jesus dead in chapter 3 and the reason why they want him dead, again, in chapter 14 is the same reason. It's because of the hardness of their hearts. They have hardened hearts of stone. They want to kill Jesus because it's in their nature. You see, they, he didn't fit within their understanding of the Messiah and he, and, and he threatens their political power and their religious power. And instead of seeing him for who he is because of their hardened hearts, right? all they can do is see their self-interest. And because of that, they are spiritually blind and they, re, they reject him. And because of that, and because he demonstrated that he was powerful, all they can think of is, we have to kill him. This is the same attitude that we see in, in this day, Jesus had done countless miracles for thousands of people in front of thousands of eyewitnesses, and he would healed people and cast out demons, and he demonstrated a real love and what real love looks like, and he's compassionate and kind, and, and in spite of this, their hearts are so hard, all they can think about is he's the enemy and we have to kill him, that he is the evil one. Right? They believe that it will actually honor God to put him to death. That's what they believe. They think that they're doing right by sneaking around in the middle of the night doing this. They're completely blind to the truth because of their hardened hearts. And before we stand in judgment of them saying, I would never do anything like that, I would say, Yes, you would, and so would I. You would, unless God changed your heart. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian now, there was a time in your life that you weren't. And there was a time in your life that your heart was hardened to God. Just think back. It didn't take very long to go back in history. There's a point in your life you ran from God. There's a point in your life, if you're like me, that you hated God. There's a point in your life that you wanted nothing to do with Him. Especially the God is revealed in the Scriptures. I mean, maybe the God of our own making, yeah, we were all in love with that because he looked like me. But the true living God, we didn't want anything to do with him. And because of that, like the rest of the world, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. But then something happened to you. Either by your circumstances, something happened in your life, traumatic or amazing or something, or either through another person who ministered into your life, God came into your life and changed your heart. And because your heart was changed, you heard the gospel. And suddenly, it's no longer foolishness. But it became good news to you. I want you to understand, that was my story right there. I'd heard the gospel a thousand times in my life, and it was stupid. It was foolishness. But once God changed my heart through Carson, in that circumstance, once God changed my heart, I heard the gospel... I was alive. Suddenly, it made sense to me. It was good news. It was good news, and instead of rejecting the gospel, you believed and put your faith in it. And yes, you actually have to exercise faith, but understand, God had to change your heart so that you would. Otherwise, you would have rejected Christ just like these men do. The only thing difference between you and these men, besides 2,000 years of history, is the hardness of their hearts. By the grace of God, your heart has been changed. And because that is a difference, as we talked about, we talked about it months ago, actually, the difference between those who are in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom, as we looked at through the gospel of Mark, the difference between believers and and non-believers ultimately is the condition of their hearts. The difference between me and and you and these men that, that are seeking to put Jesus to death is not intelligence. I'm going to tell you they were really smart people. And it's not upbringing. Some of these people were brought up really well with good families. And it's not going to be nationality. These, this was the nation of Israel. It's not our place in history. We, we tend, in our place in history, to look down on people in the past. But these people were very smart and very well advanced for their time. And accomplished many things that we would never do. I mean, think about it. What do we do with all the tools we have? We sit around looking at videos all day long instead of changing the world. The fundamental difference between us and them ultimately is one thing. It's the condition of our hearts. By the grace of God, our hearts have been changed into a fertile soil that received the seed of the gospel. And that seed fell in and then grew up and bore a fruit of repentance in our lives. By the grace of God, your heart has been changed These men under their hand had unchanged, hardened hearts of stone, and because of that, all they could do in spite of all that Jesus did is to see him as the enemy and believe that Jesus must die. But the problem for them in this moment is twofold. Number one, Jesus is really popular at the time, and arresting him and trying him publicly could cause unrest or a riot. It was politically dangerous to do what they're attempting to do right now in public. Secondly, even though that they believe that Jesus must die, they don't have a legitimate reason to kill him. They don't. They just know he needs to die. They just don't know why. They believe he must die, but they don't have a reason that would allow them to kill him without the people actually turning on them. They just think that they know within themselves that they need to take action. They have to do something, they reason, and and, they And in that, they'll break all the rules. And that's what they're doing, by the way. I don't know if you realize, but number one, they arrested Jesus with no clear charges. They just arrested him. Even then, they had to tell you why they were arresting you. Number two, they convened an emergency meeting at the high priest's home instead of the temple. That's suspicious. Number three, they convened an emergency meeting in the middle of the night instead of during the day. And then four, they denied Christ the right to adequately be able to defend himself. You notice they don't even give them a chance to cross-examine or call any witnesses or anything. When you see what happens here, they just rush to judgment. The thing we need to realize is they knew that what they were doing is dirty. They knew that they were outside the bounds of what was legal for them to do. They knew what they were doing was not right. They knew it was wrong and didn't care. They believed in their minds that he was guilty. And because of it, they felt justified to abuse their power to do so. They believe that the ends justified the means. And if there is a point for us to reflect on as people, as a culture, as as a country, it's that very tendency in all of us to justify the means by the ends. Because if there's something that, that, that we could fall prey to, I think it's this. I mean, we believe, I think we all kind of start off with, believing we should be law-abiding citizens. We all start off with a base, we should follow the rules and expect other people to do the same thing. We believe that people should stay within the bounds until, that is, they encounter what we believe is extenuating circumstances. Then we feel justified to set aside the law and set aside the rules and do what we think is right. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, this is what the culture tells us now. This is what we see at, at work in our, in our own country at the moment. It's what we've seen throughout history, but it's really prominent now. Right? The law says it's illegal to steal and to destroy property and to riot. Unless, of course, now social justice is involved, but then go ahead and do that stuff. Now it's okay, because there's extenuating circumstances that give you a pass, you have justification now to break the law. And what we'll do is we'll just call it protests. This is just one example, by the way. We, we know of multiple examples in our culture where, where people see a justification to break the law. And, and, and that's what our culture is telling us, right? The truth is our culture is fraught with double standards. And, and, and our, our culture promotes it, by the way. In fact, it's, it's all over art, I don't know if you realize it. Like it's kind of like I was thinking about this a couple years ago. It's all over television. Think about your favorite drama on television, especially crime dramas. What what, was the common theme? You have the person who's there to uphold the law and always get the bad guy, right? But then there's those times when the law itself gets in the way of them getting the bad guy, right? Right? Come on, NCIS, you know what I'm talking about? Right? The, The law's in the way of getting the bad guy. You can't go get the bad guy. Oh, yes, I can. Why? because well, I'm a law unto my own now. I can do what I want because I'm justified because right, I have a higher sense of justice than everyone else in morality. And we go, yeah, that's right. Now Gibbs slap him on the way out, right? <laughs> we, we, we celebrate that. We see this in characters on, and, and movies and television all the time, and we celebrate this. You know, they rationalize breaking the very law that they claim to uphold in order to do what they think is a greater good. Brothers and sisters, that's what these men are doing here. They believe that they're doing something for the greater good of their country. They believe that what they're doing is serving justice. They believe that what they're doing is essential for the survival of their people because of the political climate that they're in. They're doing the very thing that we cheer characters doing on television. They're stepping outside of the law, because, not because they don't value the law, They're doing it because they think that they're serving a greater sense of justice. And the result is they feel justified and even righteous for for setting aside the rules in order to accomplish what they feel needs to be done and can't be done in any other way. They're rationalizing their actions. And again, before we, we, we judge too harshly, understand I'm capable of this very same thing. We rationalize all the time how we treat people in spite of what we've been told in the Word of God to do. We know the Word of God says. We know that we're called to forgive. We know that we're called to love our enemies. We know that we're called to treat love our neighbors as ourselves. But we will justify not doing so. Well, man, he was really mean to me. You don't understand. Well, she is really a jerk. Should have seen what they said about me on Facebook. You should have seen how they were acting. You did the same thing. You just don't know what they're what they're doing to me, what they've said to me. We rationalize our unforgiveness all the time. We rationalize our withholding love from other people. We will rationalize continually our our unChrist-like behavior. We know. I can say the same thing every Sunday, and you guys know, right? We know what needs to be done but oftentimes we feel that there's a warrant. We have a reason. We have a legitimate justification not to do what Christ is calling us to do. Sometimes we feel justified breaking the rules to serve what we think is a greater good. And it's not just us. This is not just limited to individuals. Businesses operate the same way, and so do governments. I mean, the reality is we know, standing here a year later... That the coronavirus is a serious health issue and it should be taken seriously. Absolutely. It has, it has harmed people we know and love. But let's just be honest. Right, Let's be real. Our government has set aside the law in order to lock us down for the extended period of time. This is not just my opinion. This is what's happened. Right? The law has been set aside to lock us down. And that's why the Supreme Court, by the way, is ruling against govern- governors all over the country. They're saying, you did violate the Constitution. You stepped outside the limits. Right? And they know they have, by the way. They know. right? And they'll justify it by saying, well, well, it's an emergency. It's a health crisis. That's their rationale. They rationalize what they've done based on the circumstances. But the problem is that we have to come to terms with is when we justify setting aside the law in emergencies, it's a really dangerous precedent for us to set as individuals and as groups of people. In fact, I heard it said that when you allow the government to break the law in an emergency, they will find emergencies so they can break the law. And if we in our own righteousness, if we get to the point where we are so righteous that we can set aside the commands of Christ, right, because we think that circumstances warrant it, we are stepping out on a very slippery slope, brothers and sisters. Be careful. Because this is what these men did here in the text. They believe that they're working in the best interest of the nation. They believe that they are working in the best interest of their people. And they believe that they're working in the best interest of themselves. And they believe that they know that there's no other choice. This has to be done. Right? Jesus going free. them, is just simply not an option here. Uh, They have a hard heart, and they justify their actions, which is a really dangerous combination. Notice it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They knew what they needed to do, and they knew... Right? that they were willing to do that, but they had a problem. They needed a reason to put Jesus to death, and they needed evidence to corroborate the reason, but for all of their planning and preparation and all the things that they did to make this work, they can't, they can't get their case to stick. You see, under the Levitical law, by the way, most just legal systems in the world have their roots in the Levitical law. But according to the Levitical law, if you were to put somebody to death for a crime, you had to have at least two witnesses. One witness was not enough to get it done. You had to have two. And their testimony had to be unimpeachable. They had to agree to a sufficient point to where you could tell that they actually witnessed it and they weren't just like making up details. Otherwise, you just couldn't put anybody to death. Well, for all their planning and stacking the deck, these religious leaders could not find anyone that could bring a credible charge against Christ, deserving of death, and they certainly couldn't sustain anything with two witnesses. Look, in fact, it says in verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple that, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. You see, they had multiple witnesses testifying about Jesus talking about destroying the temple, which we are familiar with because he didn't mention that right, in this text, but also in the, in the, the Gospel of John, he, talks, he, he threatens and says, tear this, this temple down and I'll build it back in three days. Like, so there is some, some truth to what he said, but they don't even have the ability to get witnesses to, to agree on the details enough to where they can make it stick to convict him and kill him. But notice it doesn't stop them. They don't just give up. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Now, the thing what you have to understand is happening here is these men have really had no grounds to arrest him. They have no business holding him. They have no business even trying him now. They certainly don't have any business condemning him to death. All their eyewitness testimony has fallen apart. Right? And Jesus is giving them nothing to continue on. They have nothing at this point to go on. Now here's the thing. The obvious legal, ethical, moral, and right thing to do at this point would be do what? To let him go. That would have been, in all accounts, the thing they should have done. Because that's where the evidence points to. The evidence says he's innocent. The evidence says he does not deserve death. It says you need to let him go. That's where the evidence leads. But what do they do? They don't do that. They stubbornly hold on to their preconceived conclusion in spite of the evidence, they're holding on to their assumptions without evidence holding on to their assumptions without proof. If there is another idea that we in this culture can fall prey to, it's this. Many of us have have preconceived ideas about lots of things, about ideas, about events, about people, about theology, even about the motives of other people that we come in contact with. We have very clear right, preconceived ideas about lots of things. And the problem is that many of us will stubbornly hold on to those preconceived ideas in spite of the evidence that's presented to us. That's why it's so hard to change our stinking minds. People stubbornly hold on to preconceived ideas without evidence about politicians. <laughs> oh, boy. About conspiracy theories. Some people have, have unfounded beliefs about their spouses and what they might be doing. If they don't have no proof, they're still going to believe that they're doing what they, don't, what, what they think they're doing. It doesn't matter what the evidence says, people will hold on to what they believe. And we as Christians are not above this, by the way. Many of us have preconceived ideas about a lot of things, that we, and we don't want to let them go. Whether it's because of our upbringing, or just that's how we were taught, or trained, or whatever. Let me just give you one quick example, and I'll move on from this. I have some friends and some family members who, who will only read the King James Version of the Bible... Which, which I think is fine. You love the King James Bible. I love the King James Bible. It's a wonderful version of the of the Bible, and I still remember many verses from the King James version. It's the first book, I, first Bible I read, cover to cover, and I did multiple times. I struggled in some places. I'll tell you, but I got through it multiple times. But I, but I know people who think that this is the only that the King James version is the only inerrant version of the Bible in existence. They believe that every other English translation is corrupt, right? Because they differ than the King James Version in some places. And they believe that the King James Version is the only correct Bible and that, that the King James Version doesn't have any translational issues at all. That's what they believe. The problem is, though, is when we get down to brass tacks, when we actually get down to the issues, any objective review of the evidence that's available to anybody in the world Any objective review of the evidence completely undermines that position because when you look at the historical evidence and the textual evidence that we have a riches of, by the way, and the literary evidence, the conclusion falls apart. The only way that a person can then hold on to King James onlyism is to adopt conspiracy theories and ignore all of the evidence that all rational people would say that's the evidence. And and, and here's the thing: as a person takes that view, we love you, we pray for you, praise the Lord that you know you love Jesus. But the reality is, is the ESV, the New American Standard Bible. Dare I even say maybe the NIV? (laughs) There are lots of great English translations of the Bible, and and what we and the thing is, is just putting this to rest. We live in a time when all this information is public and available. You go to a couple websites, and you can find all the information you need and see all the manuscripts, and and it'll even do the work for you where you can click buttons and actually see how the Greek and the Hebrew is translated. But the point being is we have a tendency to do exactly what these men are doing, is hold on to our assumptions in spite of the evidence. And I point this out because that's what these men in this text are doing. The evidence says you can't convict him that you need to let him go, but they but they refuse to listen even to the evidence. They stubbornly hold on to their assumptions. These men are going to hold this trial at nighttime, away from the public eye, (laughs) and they can't make anything stick, but they still won't give up. And after the witnesses fail to substantiate the claim against Jesus, instead of giving up, the high priest resorts to questioning Jesus directly. By the way, I don't know if you realize that's actually unorthodox for them to start questioning him about the charges that they can't make stick against him. In fact, it was actually a rule at this time that you couldn't make somebody incriminate themselves. But guess what? Who cares about the rules now? Let's press on. right? And then after not getting an answer out of Jesus, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And so finally, the high priest changes direction, right, By giving up asking about all the other charges and he just decides he's going to start a different approach and ask him, does he think he's the Messiah? Which the high priest should know the answer to this, right? Because the high priest was in Jerusalem and Jesus rode in on the back of a donkey and everyone was shouting Hosanna, right? They know what Jesus was thinking. He was in Jerusalem when Jesus cleansed the temple, and he was familiar with the things that Jesus had been saying for several days. The case was very clear, so he's expecting Jesus to say, Yes, I am the Messiah. And the high priest probably thought they would have to follow that up with other questions to try to trick him or trap him or incriminate him like they've been trying to do in the temple. But Jesus' response was actually a little bit more than he expected. Verse 62, he says, Jesus said, I am. And what you need to understand is this is a very clear, this is the clearest terms that Jesus has affirmed that he is the Messiah. To this point, right, he's not allowed anybody to talk about it. It wasn't until he rode in on a donkey that he actually was declaring it with his actions. Now he's saying with his words, yes, I am the Messiah. And this by itself, though it might have been controversial, was not going to be enough for him to be worthy of death not enough to have him killed because there had been Messiah figures throughout history and nobody killed them because they claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, they followed him until they proved they were the Messiah by getting killed. So the first part of the answer was not shocking to the high priests, right? because they probably believed that Jesus believed that he was the Messiah and they expected him to admit it. But but this is the second part of the answer that, that the priest found objectionable. And I want you to understand, it's objectionable for reasons you might not realize. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power come in the clouds of heaven. Now, I've read this a number of times, and I read a number of commentaries on this text, because I want to know, what is it that he said here that's the big deal? What is the statement that he's making that actually gets him to convict Jesus? And nearly all the commentaries I read make it clear that what Jesus said here is really not out of bounds for somebody who claims to be the Messiah that Jesus is simply quoting scriptures about the Messiah. He quotes Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And the other part of this quote that Jesus had was Psalm 110, 1. And it reads, The Lord said to my Lord, set the right place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet what we need to understand is Jesus is quoting scriptures that were messianic. They were about the Messiah. And these men would have been familiar with this. It's not like Jesus was quoting some text out of the Bible that these men had never thought about with respect to the Messiah itself. They knew these texts were messianic in nature. They knew it was about the Messiah. But for some reason, right, they got upset. Now, For someone to claim that they were the Messiah, these texts wouldn't surprise anybody for him to quote. But notice how they react to him saying this. And the high priest tore their garment and said, what further witnesses do do we need? You've heard his testimony. What is your decision? And they all condemned him, saying, condemned him as deserving death. The high priest tore his garment. Now this was originally when it first, we see it in the Bible is an act of grief, an act of contrition. But he tears his garment here, right, as a ceremonial display. This is a ceremonial display of judgment against Jesus. This is an act. This is a contrived ritual. It is a sign of him pronouncing guilt upon Jesus. He he responds to Jesus' statement, in essence, with fake outrage, is really what's happening here. And he pronounces the charge of blasphemy against Jesus and the council consents to it and says, he deserves to die. But if you look again at what he said here, and if you look at what the law actually constituted as blasphemy, even in the broadest sense, you're going to struggle to find the reason why they condemned him to death for blasphemy here. Because legally, it's not there. Jesus did not utter the divine name, which is they consider blasphemous. And he didn't directly... Claim divinity in that moment, right? Because because being the Messiah in the Jews' eyes didn't make someone equal with God. And even being the Son of Man in the the eyes of Jewish people didn't make them equal to God, right? They certainly believed that that the Messiah would be royalty and a descendant of David, but they didn't make that connection between the Messiah and, and God the way that we understand it in Christ. So that's not what set them off. It wasn't blasphemy that set them off. It's much more subtle than that. What we see is the implications of what Jesus said to him. He said, see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the issue for them. The Old Testament, the clouds were a sign of God's judgment. If God came on the clouds, he's coming to judge. And the idea is that Jesus... He's saying, as the Messiah, I am coming to judge. And who's he going to judge? The very ones that are sitting in judgment over him in this moment. Jesus is saying, I'm the, I'm the Messiah, and guess what? I'm going to judge you. This is when the priest really felt the threat of Jesus' existence now. Because it was a promise, and he understood it in the context of, Right, that If Jesus rises to power, if we allow that guy to live, he's going to come back with an army, and we're going to be one of the first ones that he's going to judge. That was the understanding. Right, They didn't realize that Jesus actually was talking about not just judging them, but judging the entire world, judging all of God's enemies. But nonetheless, the high priest felt threatened, and they realized Jesus was simply too powerful to let go And so rather than risking their neck, they decided, we've got enough to run on. We're going to take our chances now with public opinion. And so they make their case to the best of their ability. And a display of fake outrage. And a display of fake piety. And a display of fake, um, you know, indignance towards Christ. He, He tears his robe and declares blasphemy without even the evidence of blasphemy. Reminds us again of lot, so much of what we see today, the posturing of people, the phony outrage of politicians. I'll tell you, if there's anything that makes my stomach turn, it's that. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I can spend all day talking about that, but I have a tendency to go along anyway, so I'll move on from that. <laughs> the truth is, the high priest felt threatened by Jesus, and so he fakes his outrage and calls a council to pronounce guilt upon him without any evidence. And then in their fake outrage, it says, and some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, prophecy. So quickly after Jesus Jesus reminds them that he's going to judge them, they find him guilty, and now what do they do? (sighs) Like all civilized people, right? They resort to violence and mockery. Spitting on him, striking him as a sign of repudiation and rejection, they absolutely are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, but then notice it says they cover his face and they hit him as a prophecy. It's kind of a weird, kind of like s- set of events. But really, what happens here is they believed at that time that the Messiah could actually d- differentiate people blindfolded by simply by smell, and so they're hitting him, saying, "Okay, bub, who hit you?" What they're doing is they're just basically mocking him now. They're trying to humiliate him, and then notice that the council members, after they're done you know, getting their licks in. They turn him over to the guards, and what does it say? And the guards received him with blows. Or in other words, they took their turns to beat up Jesus too. Think about this. This is the highest part of civilized society in Jerusalem, and they resort to basically street-level thuggery. I can go on and on and talk about that too, how we're capable of really falling into the depths of depravity and our hatred and our biases. But I think you kind of get the point. We can look at these men and see. If it were not for the grace of God, we could be just like them. Praise the Lord for his grace. Can I get an amen to that? Praise the Lord for his grace. And praise the Lord for his sovereignty. Because here's the part that's easy to overlook here. Because though Jesus' condemnation by the Sanhedrin was a foregone conclusion because of their hard hearts and their hatred towards Jesus, this was really a foregone conclusion because this is how God had sovereignly decreed for all of this to happen. This happens exactly by his hand. I want you to notice in this whole thing, Jesus is in complete control. They can't do anything to him. They can't find him guilty. They can't really do anything to him. It's not until Jesus, in his own timing, forces the issue with what he has to say. He knows exactly what to say to move this along. It's not until Jesus is ready to move forward that it moves forward. In this moment of darkness, when everything and everyone has abandoned Christ, when the world is standing against him, when the world is hating him, he is still, in that moment, completely and totally in control. And that's the truth I think we need to hold on to right now. Sing that first song. Abba, Father, hear our plea. Why? Because we're walking in a land of darkness. We know it. But what we need to remember is no matter how difficult things are, no matter how dark the darkness becomes, no matter how hopeless the circumstances might seem, that we might even be tempted to go the way of the world because of it, And to remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is completely in control of everything. And he is working everything out for the good of those who love him and for the glory of his Father. And so when all seems lost, our admonition is to do what? To turn to him and trust him more. Because we see Jesus alone in the darkness, when all seems lost, when everyone's turned against him, even when they have to lie to make their case stick, even when they resort to brutality and violence and show us the worst part of ourselves, when Jesus stands there alone, he's not doing it for no other reason except to what? To redeem us. He did it for you. You understand that, right? That he was alone in the garden with the men who hate him for you so you could be set free, so you don't have to be like them. That by His grace, that He'll change your heart. And then by His grace, Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live on your own. Securing a righteousness that you could never, ever earn. And then going to your place and gets nailed to a cross and endures the awful and terrible wrath of God for you so that by faith in Christ you can be set free and not be like them. Brothers and sisters, please look very carefully at who these men are and understand that it's the grace of God that separates us from them. His his overwhelming love that he would do that on our behalf, because I'm going to tell you I know who I am. I don't deserve the love and the grace that God has poured out on me. I look at these men and say, at least they look like that they were righteous on the outside. That's the hope that we have. is Jesus Christ alone in the dark. and no matter what we feel in the moment, He is in complete control. and our hope is to continually hold on to him. So with that, let me just give you a couple of ways to apply this and then we'll move on. The first one I think is just examine our hearts. I think that's the, probably the most important thing we can do when it comes to the Word of God is really look in the mirror and ask, what am I really like? Because we want to be like the rest of the world and want to fool ourselves and say, I'm a good person. I'm nice to people. I do good things. I do that. The reality is, is we are just as broken as these men are. Right? We need to look in the mirror and examine our hearts and even ask ourselves, right? Is our hearts hardened toward God or other people in ways that really needs to grow? Right? Do I have bitterness stored up for a person because I just don't want to let it go? Is my heart hardened in this area? Right? Also, are there times that we hold assumptions about people or certain situations without actually proof? Sometimes we get so dug in about people and think that they're a certain way that we won't even allow for any other alternative explanation for their behavior or what they do. We just decide what they're doing all the time is evil and they hate me and they're just out to get me. And we just don't allow for people to grow. Or how about how we just justify our actions because the circumstances we think warrant it? And I say that to say is because it's very tempting at times when we think we know what is right and what the right thing is to do. And we think that even doing it for the wrong reasons is the right reason to do it. I'm telling you, it's a slippery slope that we walk on. And then finally, I would ask that you would examine yourself and ask, are you living day by day in the knowledge that the, that the Christ who came into the world to secure your salvation is fully and totally in control. There's not a detail of your life that's beyond God's sovereign hand. There's nothing happening around you that's beyond his ability to change. There's nothing in your life right now that is that's taking God by surprise. You realize that, right? That's like like that's one of the best things I come back to over and over again. It's like, okay, praise the Lord. This didn't surprise you, Lord. Me being stupid and failing right now didn't surprise you. You knew all along I'm capable of this. Are you living in the knowledge that Jesus is in, in control? Finally, I'm going to ask this. Are you truly trusting in Christ? Have you turned to him in repentance and faith and put your hopes firmly on him? Are you done trying to save yourself? Are you done trying to rescue yourself in this life? Have you allowed... Christ to come in and change you from the inside out? Have you turned to him in repentance of faith? and faith? You You've not. been listening to I the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church Our website address is, is, and website address is fbcboron.org. All there is and would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.